The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Have you ever thought about what money really is? Just imagine, for example, you're going down to the Countdown or New World or Liquorland to buy a six-pack of beer. And you've got your FPOS card or maybe your PayWave card. You walk in, you grab the six-pack, you go to the self-service checkout, you wave your card, beep, and then you walk straight out. It's so simple and it seems so easy that you don't even think about what's going on behind the scenes. Now, you know intuitively that when you wave your card at the terminal, that somewhere in the back of the system, not a person but a robot, I suppose, a program, has shifted your $15 from your account, maybe it's at Westpac, to the New World Countdown Liquorland account, maybe that's at ASB, in the blink of an eye it's gone there. And if it was done through FPOS, although these days when you use PayWave, there's a little bit of an extra fee that goes in there, then it would have been relatively free and simple and safe. And you know that in the moment between your money going from your account to the Liquorland account, that the value of your money won't have changed and the price of the six-pack won't have changed. All very easy. No problem to solve. Move along now. But just imagine if you're in a country where you couldn't have a bank account, where it was really hard to get it because you needed to provide certain ID or maybe the bank didn't like the colour of your skin or maybe you were an undocumented migrant or maybe you just didn't trust the bank because you weren't sure that your money would be there the next day. And that's the case in large parts of the world. People don't trust their banking systems and it's not very easily available. And often people have to use physical cash. And in some places, when they lose trust in their physical cash, they have to have barrel loads of the stuff and it's a real problem. We take our financial services sector in many ways for granted. All around the world now, people are looking at how to improve that financial services system so that it's more reliable, more secure, that we can do more with it, and that in the long run, money, which is really about trust in a secure way of making transactions and also storing value, that we can improve that in the long run. Now, at the moment, all around the world, people are looking at using cryptocurrencies as a way to do transactions and to store value. The problem is that it's incredibly volatile and actually it's very difficult to make a very simple transaction. So right now, I couldn't walk into that Liquorland or New World and buy that six-pack with some Bitcoin that I might have in a crypto exchange because the average time to make a transaction in Bitcoin at the moment is 10 minutes. So we don't seem to worry too much about it. And there isn't a great drive for us to use cryptocurrencies or to have particular digital currencies. But all around the world now, we are seeing a competition to see who will be the one, who will have the one currency that people choose to use because they trust it and because it's more efficient and because there isn't a big clip of the ticket by the credit card company or the bank. And, for example, when you're making transactions or shifting money around the world from one place to the next, can you do it in a way that's secure, efficient, and that you feel like you're not being either ripped off or spied on? 
And that's what we're seeing now. Central banks are looking at whether to generate or create their own digital currencies to compete against cryptocurrencies and also to make sure that they control the currencies of our largest economies and in many ways to make sure they keep that control against large network monopolies, the likes of which we've seen with Amazon and Facebook and Apple and Google and Microsoft. Facebook, for example, thought about creating what they call a stable coin, which essentially is a digital currency which has a fixed connection to a existing currency. So, for example, the Libra. That was the Facebook digital currency idea. It would perhaps be worth 10 US dollars. So one Libra would be worth 10 US dollars. And that's about 13, 14 New Zealand dollars, about the same as a six pack, actually. And the idea would be that you would rock up to your countdown and instead of paying New Zealand dollars, you'd pay one Libra. And that would be because Facebook likes the look of you and have given you a free Libra year to, to spend, or maybe because they track all of your activities and your spending and who you are and where you live. They think you're a good risk and they've lent you lots of money uh, in Libra because Facebook is a big pile of cash and all of these big tech companies have big piles of cash. And when Facebook announced it was planning Libra, central banks freaked out a little, actually. They suddenly realised that they could lose authority over a key piece of sovereignty in their economy. And we've seen how important that is in the last year during COVID when central banks use their control of the currency of their particular country to essentially invent lots of cash and pump it, try to pump it out there into the economy to push down interest rates to use their control of that currency and of that monetary system and of that banking system to ensure that they could stimulate an economy. And so they, they worried, rightly I think, that if we had moved to a Libra-based currency, we could have to make a decision in the middle of a COVID crisis and beg Mark Zuckerberg to pump extra money into the global economy. That's the challenge that global central banks are facing at the moment, including our central bank, because not only is there a threat here from these big global network monopolies to essentially become the world's currency system. There's also the threat from the likes of Bitcoin. Now, at the moment, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are not what you'd call true currencies. I know I'll probably be spammed forever by the libertarian fanboys of the cryptocurrency world who scream at me that you can't trust the US dollar, but you can trust the Bitcoin. Well, Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies of the world have risen, interestingly, from being worth virtually nothing 10, 15 years ago to gyrating in value by hundreds of billions of dollars in minutes. So for right now, the world's cryptocurrencies are worth $1.5 trillion, which is notable and real. But, you know, uh, uh, three or four weeks ago, they were worth $2.5 trillion. And that's the problem for any currency. It has to be not only an efficient way to make transactions, but it has to be a secure store of value. And of course, without anyone in particular control, you can't be sure that your money is safe. And these are the issues we'll be talking about today with Chris Berg from the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology and with Dave Corbett, a fintech CEO in New Zealand who's looking at these issues. Who should run our currency system? Should it be a central bank? Should it be a global tech? Or should it be crypto? We'll find out and when the facts change.
Well, kia ora to Dave Corbett, who is the CEO of Power Finance. Welcome into the spin-offs studios in Auckland. Lovely to hear you remotely, at least from here, Wellington. Dave, how are you? Very well, thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here today. I'm really interested in how the future of money is going to evolve in New Zealand. And you're someone in the midst of this big change. Could you explain for our audience who may not have heard of smart contracts or digital currencies, what Power Finance is up to in New Zealand, you know, what sort of services you provide? So where we start from is a group of 20 people now in Auckland with the idea that actually finance is a force for good. It lets us invest in ourselves and better ourselves, our families and our communities. But at its fundamental level, we think that innovation has stalled in terms of the financial products that are in New Zealand. And there's something wrong with that because our needs as a country continue and people continues to evolve. Can you give us an example of, of how you could um, solve a particular problem? You've talked in the past about how someone you know may struggle to get the finance to build a house on a piece of land. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great place to start. So when you're in a lucky position to be building the house of your dreams, you start by buying the land and then go find a building company to help you on that journey. The financial products in New Zealand at the moment generally will be focusing on lending against the value of that land, not the future value of, uh, of the dream home that you want to build. And what that really means on a practical level is that you don't get as much bank funding to support you building your dream home as you need. And so you end up building something a bit smaller. You might see people who then tack on the garage later and and that sort of thing. And they're all just working around these uh, inefficiencies and lack of innovation in, in the products. So we are seeing a global trend around embedded finance, the idea that non-financial companies like a house building company can build the finance into their proposition for the customer. So it's a turnkey from the beginning to the end, and they can really make sure it's a great user experience all the way through, including the financing element. So you would help them provide a financial product when they're, for example, offering their building service. So in effect, they have a a bit like a, a turbocharged sort of bank they can plug into their own business. Can you tell us how Power Finance does this using smart contracts and how the idea of a power dollar comes into it? Yeah, for sure. So one of the key components to that is this idea of having programmable money. Sort of to take you on the journey of what that is, back in the day when you could write cash on a check, that would be something you could hand around from person to person. And technically, that's an uncollateralized promissory note. So let's try and improve on that cash check and say, instead of being backed by whoever wrote it to begin with, it's backed by something a lot more substantive. In our case, it's backed by tax deposits, so they're held by the inland revenue. And that prepaid tax is obviously held by the government, so that's that's really um, one of the most secure places to hold it. So what you're saying is that there's a pool of money, um, New Zealand dollars, which uh, essentially are in a safe place, which maybe that company has actually contributed, they have to put it there, but until now they haven't really been able to use it as a base to offer a loan to uh, someone to build that house. You're talking here about using tax-pooled money effectively as a way to back the smart money that, that you're creating with this company, is that right? Yeah, 100%. And, and that cash check, if you like, which we're going to digitize in a second, but when that moves around, but it's backed by something as solid as a tax deposit, then whoever's holding that after the loan of the money or the repayment of some of that money on that house, you know, they, they, can, they can cash it in and get the money back. 
Now, for a lot of people who may not know about tax pooling or how big it is or how many companies are involved in it, give us a sense of the scale of you know the potential money that could be used as a base for this business and for other businesses who want to you know plug a little bank in. Yeah. So it doesn't really have a limit per se or not a practical limit. And we're not talking about reusing money that's already there. So if you want to have some money going around in our system, you've got to bring fresh money to the party. And that's really important because we want to make sure it's super safe and it's actually genuinely backed by a real dollar held somewhere, not that dollar having two purposes, which you know fundamentally is, is, is not the kind of safety that we're looking for. So so when money's in a system, you know, it not, might not be there for very long. It could go into the tax pool, we could do a transaction between ourselves with our power dollar, and then the money could come back out again. Um, And that's fine. But whilst it's been in there, it has this magical property of being programmable money. So what can you do with programmable money? that you can't do with, you know, normal old money <laughs> that might sit in your bank account, at least in electronic form. Yeah, so so the the main thing you can do with programmable money that you can't do with old money is that we can control it by computer code, which sounds maybe a little bit techy, but when you think that those are just sets of rules, and now you can take that one step further, and th- those rules could really literally be anything. So what that means is... When we dream about having new financial products that, you know, a credit card that offsets your carbon position as you're spending or, uh, or, or the example we had before about a- incorporating finance into my building of my home, these things are actually all very doable. So in a way, you're looking to create a, your own sort of digital currency here, the power dollar, which has a direct connection to New Zealand dollars, which are already in tax pools. Can you tell us now about, you know, how others around the world are doing this, potentially using other uh, cryptocurrencies or maybe even a a central bank-created digital currency? How important is it to have a a digital currency that's either a cryptocurrency or a central bank digital currency that can really work well in the blockchain? Yeah, I mean, the the importance of having, and I would say a central bank digital currency or a cryptocurrency are are both examples of programmable money. But the importance of having programmable money is huge in that what it enables is the innovation that can just be unleashed by that. If I could just sort of distinguish between these couple of things in this broader bucket of programmable money, cryptocurrencies do worry a lot of people. When we talk about building a better um, system of finance in New Zealand, we need the answer to those questions to be not volatile. So they really have to be denominated and and be stable in value in in the currency that we're used to, which is the New Zealand dollar. And and they also have to really be backed by New Zealand dollars. And that just means that we're not introducing new extra risk into the system, that actually it's solid from the from the get-go. Now, central bank digital currency are a good example of meeting those criteria. Think of them really as an upgrade to today's money in that they're be still being issued by the central bank, but they're now upgraded because now they're programmable. They can be pushed around with this code that we talked about before um, and be, you know, actually be part of a rules-based system. So, so I think that we can discount regular cryptocurrencies for the foreseeable future for day-to-day purposes. They're just way too volatile. Um, but the central bank digital currencies are, are, are a possibility to really add value here. So uh, if the central banks were to develop their own uh, digital currencies, let's say the New Zealand Reserve Bank, which has said it is keeping an eye on this, 
if it was to develop its own digital currency, which had the backing of the Reserve Bank, effectively the state of New Zealand, it was stable, it was very connected to the existing New Zealand dollar, uh, what would that do to the, you know, fintech innovation environment in New Zealand? Yeah, I mean, that would be huge. That would really mean that New Zealand had the great possibility of another FPOS moment. So the ability to build new and innovative financial propositions here that we could you know, use to better our own lot, but also could probably um, export to the world. If we actually are quick on in getting going here, then we can innovate and figure out what the future of finance is going to look like before other countries have central bank digital currencies. And then when they're adopting them, we'll be in a great position to to export and have our fintechs playing a role in their economies also. Yeah, I've always been amazed at um, how much you know trust and trading there is in the New Zealand dollar. At various times, it's been the 10th most traded currency in the world. So there is an opportunity there for people to say, okay, I may not trust the US Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank or maybe even the People's Bank of China's currency, but, um, you know, the um, the good old New Zealand e-dollar, the Jacinda coin or whatever, whatever you wanted to call it, maybe that would be quite attractive for a bunch of people. Yeah, I mean, you raise a great point, Bernard. A lot of these things are actually historical artifacts. So New Zealand, in the last big upgrade to money systems, um, was very fast moving and went, and we went to free floating ahead of a lot of other major currencies. And, and we've kind of persisted with a pretty dominant position because of that, even though that was decades ago. So it does show you sort of the value of being reasonably first moving on currency upgrades and, and perhaps we could better our position. And, um, and become even more dominant going forward. One interesting dominant player at the moment in international trade, of course, is the US dollar. And, and that's what a lot of the uh, speculation ab- about upgrades to central bank digital currency are all about. They're the question is, you know, has the US dollar got a lot more to lose than it's got to gain by other currencies are going to programmable first? Yeah, because we're at a, an interesting moment in the, the history of the world's monetary systems because just in the last two or three years, we've seen the market valuation of all of the world's cryptocurrencies go from virtually nothing to currently, as we speak, 1.492 trillion US dollars. And a lot of people who are using Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are saying that one of the reasons they invest in these uh, cryptocurrencies, which essentially are not connected to any sovereign central bank, there is a limited supply of them by the way that the currency has been created and that for every new Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever it is, it has to be created using something, in the case of Bitcoin, uh, electricity, and therefore it seems to have something behind it, unlike fiat currencies, which are literally created at the behest of a central bank governor who, who may decide they need to create money to buy government bonds. Do you think that this explosion of quantitative easing around the world in the last year, we've seen an extra $10 trillion created by the world central banks. Do you think that's fueling some of this, I wouldn't call it frenzy, but intense action towards using cryptocurrencies that um, that maybe New Zealand could uh, take advantage of? Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I wouldn't say that I could ever predict why anyone's doing anything in cryptocurrency. Um, but on the other hand, one of the 
businesses that we've built at Power Finance that uses our platform is a private credit business. And so in that business, we're interacting with institutional investors quite often, trying to find out what kind of bonds they're most interested in. I would say over the last few months, the interest in having bonds that have inflationary adjustments to them, so CPI adjustments, has uh, really come up as a hot topic. So to put that another way, I think that the the worry about inflation is is real and back again, and and that's really going to the heart of what you're saying. If we keep printing money, um, at some point it's going to have an impact on inflation, and 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 that's and and so there is a theory that people are going into Bitcoin or Ethereum just as really as to to get out of that um, potential inflation bubble with 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 traditional currencies. But as I say, you know, um, trying to understand how why anything happens in cryptocurrencies is a um, a tricky thing to do. Yeah. It sounds to me like um, you see the future more in central bank uh, digital currencies than in the sort of libertarian wild west of cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I... I um I guess that is where I'm at, and, and it's a difficult place to be trying to take the best from a technology perspective from that cryptocurrency world, but practically apply it into today's world. I think there's still a lot of really interesting questions in that central bank digital currency world. They're not all going to be equal. Um, one of the really interesting debates at the moment is around privacy. One thing about central bank digital currencies is that potentially they could be implemented in a really um, distasteful way where all transactions can be seen from the center or from a reserve bank. But those kind of design questions are really are just that. We have to think about what do we want as a country and what reflects our values. And then we can make sure that any central bank digital currency that New Zealand has reflects New Zealand and, and its values. If, if we just sort of stand back, we might just get someone else's values. Mm. You cut to the heart there of the very issue of money. Um, we don't think much about um, the values of Money, uh, we rely on it to be efficient and to be stable, and uh, but essentially it's about trust, isn't it? It's about a, a collective, a society or an economy, believing that a particular currency, particularly in the age of fiat currencies, which aren't backed by gold or any any particular asset, that those those currencies, those financial systems, will work every day, often millions of times a second and that their money won't be lost in the process of going from one account to another, or that when you turn up at a bank in a year's time, the same amount will be there and it'll be worth broadly the same as it was a year ago. How do you think that will develop in New Zealand and the rest of the world in an era when increasingly people are struggling to trust the sort of government state institutions that... um, you know, maybe in the 50s and 60s and 70s, they were much more trusting of. Yeah, trust is a really complicated issue, um, to, to say the obvious. Actually, a lot of surveys in New Zealand say that we do trust our government, we do trust our banks. I, I think that um, 
When we go about building these new central bank digital currencies, what we need to know is that there is design choice. And so what one, one suggestion we have is create this idea of a identity custodian. So instead of having all of your transaction details viewable directly and automatically from a central bank, um, rather they're being compiled on a read-only basis by a independent trusted entity. Let's say, a, you know, like a trustee company of some sort. And that gives you the right checks and balances that we're used to here, where, yes, the police or a regulator can get access to those records for you know, valid law enforcement purposes, but they've got to go through due process and they've got to get a warrant for that information or otherwise have a, a valid claim to see them. And what would be great to see, see a debate about that and you know, what do we want and th- therefore what do we actually need to build? How important is it for the for the government and for the Reserve Bank to engage in this debate? Because at the moment, I, I get a sense that they're, um, they've got a hands full with COVID and various other things, but also they see some very big players overseas, you know, at the bleeding edge of this debate. And sometimes it's it's not a fun place to be at the bleeding edge of any new technology change. It's best to sort of come in after the, the bugs have been fixed. Do you think that New Zealand can afford to just sit back and wait for this to play out? Or is there an opportunity to sort of get ahead of the rest? And as, as you say, maybe the e-kiwi is the, uh, the thing that a lot of people in the rest of the world might find trustworthy. Yeah, look, I think um, my, my guess outlook on life is it's great opportunity, but it's about choosing which horses we want to back. And uh, for me, it's strategically a great opportunity for us to make a move and and be a real global player in this in this uh, industry. We can probably follow. It's probably not all... Um, you know, the end of the world if we're not the first. It's just a, it's a question of what, what sort of um, feeling of missing out and what, what opportunities might have been. Um, and and that's, that's, that's really strategy and leadership. Lots of work to do, Dave, and uh, lots of change coming. Very interesting part of the economy. Dave Corbett, the CEO of Power Finance, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Bernard. And after the break, we'll talk to Chris Berg to dive into the curly issues around creating and running a central bank digital currency. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? 
Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Welcome into the conversation, Chris Berg, who's an Associate Professor and the Co-Director of the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. This is in Melbourne. And uh, Chris, welcome into this uh, conversation. Sad to hear you're in lockdown. But firstly, I'd like you to explain to us what is a central bank digital currency? Of course. So, I mean, it, look, it really depends what central bank you're talking to. And the thing about central bank digital currencies is that there's a lot of experimentation around the world and a lot of variety. There's only really one or two central bank digital currencies that actually exist and have been deployed. But at the high level, most central bank digital currencies involve the central bank becoming or providing the digital payment rails for the entire payments system. So normally when we interact with the financial system, we'll interact through a lot of intermediaries like banks, um, like credit card processes and so forth. A central bank digital currency is much more about directly interacting with the central bank themselves on their own payments platform, on their own payments infrastructure. Now, once we get past that, that's that high level description, they are all very different. Some of them are on publicly available and accessible blockchains. Others are their own digital infrastructure systems that may allow the government or the central bank to censor transactions, to invade your privacy and so forth. So, you know, there there are good central bank digital currencies and there are bad central bank digital currencies, but all of them are this idea that we interact directly with the central bank for payments. So in Australia and New Zealand, we have quite a functional banking system. It's widely used. We do a lot of transactions electronically, debit, credit cards. Even when we buy a coffee, we use one of these things these days. Or when we're buying a house, we transfer from one bank to another. How is that different? You know, what is it that's different about a central bank digital currency than what we have now? Well, from the consumer's perspective, it may well not be. Um, You'll continue to interact with credit cards or debit cards. You'll continue to use your online banking services. But at the back end, the underlying framework will be quite different and it may give the central bank or the banks that you interact with some new tools, some new efficiencies that they don't have right now. Now, it is interesting when you think about though, um, uh, and I can't speak for the New Zealand experience, but I can speak for the Australian experience. The Reserve Bank of Australia is not very excited about central bank digital currencies, primarily because they're very proud of new payments infrastructure that they've already introduced. In fact, introduced quite recently the new payments platforms. But in countries that have much less sophisticated, much less developed payments infrastructure, um, you can see you can see the appeal. And why is there this urgency? Particularly in places like America and Europe, you've got the US Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, all quite aggressively looking at doing these things. 
What's the problem they're trying to solve? Yeah, look, I think there are two problems. The first is it's important that they keep up with the competition. So this is something that we should want governments to do. They are providing a service through their central bank. We should want them to be improving that service as much as they can. And this is in the context, bear in mind, of just massive innovation around payment systems and around money. So, for example, I think the political drive for central bank digital currencies was really sparked by the announcement a couple of years ago that Facebook was going to launch its own digital online currency. That got a lot of people excited and it got a lot of central bankers and governments very, very worried because they started to think, well, are we going to lose our monopoly control over the payments rails of our given countries? That inspired just a massive amount of experimentation in central banks around the world. Simultaneous to that, of course, is just the the, what I study, right, the, the blockchain and cryptocurrency ecosystem that has just flourished extraordinarily, not just over the last decade, but over the last you know 12 months, 18 months. And so the central bankers of the world are seeing the monetary space change wildly around them, and they're looking for ways to improve their services and ideally, from their perspective, make sure that they are still at the very top. Of the, uh, of the money pile, if you will. And creating that money, because there is a competition in a way that's going on here for the trust of people who are using currencies all over the world, particularly when you have this globalised situation where, in theory, people could choose to use, for example, the digital renminbi instead of US dollars or Australian dollars to do their transactions if they believe that that transaction is cheaper or more reliable or the currency is more stable or is more likely to be around after the apocalypse. So how much of a real competition is there to be the one? I think there's a really substantial competition, and you're right to bring up the Chinese central bank digital currency in the sense that um, I don't think we can pretend that the geopolitics isn't there either. China has the most evolved. In fact, it has rolled out its central bank digital currency in most regions in China. And it's got quite a specific goal with the Chinese CBDC, which is that it gets adopted outside Chinese national borders as well. There's also another element that I don't think is widely understood about the Chinese central bank digital currency, that it's also a competing power against some of the payment systems that the private sector has evolved in China, like um, Alipay and WeChat Pay. And the Chinese government has decided, well, we, what we want to do is um, compete directly with our local private sector payment system. So you, you're right. I think when we talk about, and it's true for any government department, right, any government agency, when we talk about the central bank digital currencies, it's not just about is it going to be a better service. It's also about the politics and the nature of political power and monetary power. And I think a lot of banks around the world, central banks around the world, are seeing CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, as a way to ensure that, that you know the, the, the power is directed towards that. So let's say there is a central bank digital currency. Maybe it's the US Federal Reserve that's got one or the European Central Bank. They've got some real heft there. But there are people who have a lot to lose here because, in theory, why would you need to use a normal bank or a normal credit card system? Um, could you see you know, the, the state, if you like, the central banks take over from these banks? Look, that... that- that's absolutely right. And so depending on how it's structured and depending on what the central bank digital currency service provides, it could really undermine some 
some fundamental business models that a lot of private sector providers have. So that could be just in money transmission. That could be, as as you say, it could be in taking deposits. A lot of people, I know this is a debate that's been ongoing in Australia, has suggested that, well, can a government agency offer deposit accounts? For example, Australia Post, um, should they offer deposit accounts? Could the could the central bank offer deposit accounts if it decided to implement the central bank digital currency? Again, it really depends on how it's designed. I, I'd also say that there are some substantial privacy concerns with central bank digital currencies. And I think one of the reasons that a lot of governments like this idea is because it'll give them more fine-grained control over how money is spent in the economy. That can be used for for good or ill. And I think that's one of the big concerns with like the Chinese um, CBDC. You know, again, we're in such a massive space of financial and technological innovation. I would be very surprised if a CBDC managed to monopolize or dominate all this new payments infrastructure that we're seeing around the world. I think the horse has bolted. I think once Bitcoin was invented and the innovation that we've seen after Bitcoin in the last decade suggests that we're entering a world with many payment systems, many competing currencies and much greater accessibility of the general public to the financial system. Now, one of the things I was taught about a currency is that it becomes particularly useful when it's stable, when you can use it to transact and as a store of value. However, um, these cryptocurrencies out there, and of course, Bitcoin is the largest one and the oldest one, they're quite volatile. They can go up 30 40% in a day, down in the same day. It makes you a bit nervous when you're putting your grandmother's uh, money in there. It's going to be quite difficult, isn't it, for these cryptocurrencies to become real transaction places. Look, so all, all those criticisms are true. And if your hope for Bitcoin would that it would be a, a money, um, then then Bitcoin has failed. Bitcoin is now described by its most ardent supporters as digital gold in that you hold it and it accumulates value over time. So in that sense, um, uh, Bitcoin has failed if that was the goal in the first place. It's not to say that there aren't many alternatives to Bitcoin, but it is absolutely true that none of them have displaced or are likely to displace fiat currencies anytime soon. What I am very excited by, though, is the idea of a class of cryptocurrencies called stablecoins. Stablecoins are designed to be stable against fiat currency, so they're actually pegged to fiat currencies. They are very quick to transact with, quick to exchange, and they're very, very important in the crypto economy right now. So the biggest stable coin in the world is uh, Tether, which is pegged to the US dollar. There's $80 billion worth of Tether on issue right now. It is used in vast numbers of cryptocurrency and blockchain applications. And I think to return to the central bank digital currency environment is that what those CBDCs will be competing with this, not against you know speculative assets like Bitcoin. It'll be competing against just easier ways to not just transmit funds, but to use the opportunities that programmable money allows, allows you to make unusual new types of financial contracts, to, to exchange value with people using um, smart contracts, uh, all these new decentralized finance applications that we've really seen thrive in the last 18 months. 
So can you give us some examples of these sorts of smart contracts, digital money? One of the things that you can't do with regular money is you can't borrow regular money without handing over lots of forms of identification. And that that has some serious consequences because, as we know, there are discriminated groups in society that find it a lot harder to get a loan. In the smart contract environment, we can design loan systems where you can borrow money without having to provide any identity. You provide up collateral and a smart contract manages the repayment of that loan for you or repossesses the collateral that you put up as well. And so there's lots of applications. In fact, one of the major uh, stablecoins has one of these uh, loan systems at its heart. There's lots of interesting applications about debts that aren't paid off on a schedule, but they vary the amount of time that um, you would pay off depending on the prevailing interest rate for the underlying asset. So there's all sorts of weird and wacky and highly experimental decentralized financial products. So one of the issues we're dealing with is that these really big network monopolies like Amazon, Google, Facebook could use their big cash piles to create a stable coin and actually become the electronic currency. Do you think they could build their own stable coin? Look, I, I think it's absolutely likely that they'll be able to create their own stablecoin. I am very sceptical that any given single big company would be able to dominate the space in the way that Facebook has managed to dominate at least parts of social media or Amazon has managed to dominate parts of cloud computing and those sorts of things. Um, and the reason that I'm sceptical about that is because what we're talking about is open access systems. We're talking about systems that basically are completely free for anybody to build on, to build with, to copy, to fork, to um, create their own. And in that sort of environment, that's very different from traditional corporations that might tend towards monopolies. They are, in fact, highly competitive and highly disruptive. And that's sort of, that's baked into their architecture. That's just how they are. It's possible that we could be in a world with new monopolies, but I just don't see how we would get there from the technology we have today. Now, one of the issues that people have now with central banks that seems to be driving their desire for a digital currency is that over the last year or so, and over the last decade, they've been going on quantitative easing sprees. And one of the ideas is that if you've created a digital currency, then you could, for example, impose a negative interest rate or use these accounts to inject money very quickly into the economy to get it moving again, a bit like Milton Freeman's helicopter money. Do you think there is a risk here that central banks could use these tools, these digital currencies, as a monetary and fiscal policy tool? Yeah, look, I, I think that's a big part of it. I, I think that a lot of central banks are excited by the possibilities that this could provide for unusual monetary or fiscal policy strategies, as you say. You know, uh, Milton Friedman's helicopter drop was a it was a sort of thought experiment now we have the institutional structure that we could do it automatically uh, I think that's part of the attraction I think part of the attraction is being able to impose those negative interest rates in a way that you can't do when there's um, a lot of cash floating around your economy um, now how much we should be excited about that as citizens really depends on how benevolent you think your local government is <laughs> so um, you know you and I with New Zealand and Australia that those two fairly successful, fairly free countries that we have relative trust, but, you know, they stuff up too, right? And I'm not, I'm not always comfortable about handing over a greater control of the financial system to, to a political class that may or may not be able to use it in the best way. 
Are we facing a choice here between trusting our central bankers and our finance ministers versus trusting a bunch of tech oligarchs or you know, trusting a bunch of sort of Wild West libertarian people with no names? I, I think we're going to face that choice as individuals. Um, I think that this is the direction that public policy, the economy, the financial sector is heading. I think that those choices play off against each other. So while I am concerned about the prospects of a poorly designed or oppressive central bank digital currencies, I am heartened by the fact that that will exist in a world where I can also interact on the decentralized finance sector. It's those wild anarchic libertarians that will save us from that um, oppressive big state. I, I think we're just about to enter a world with more choices. Um, more choices for us as individuals, as participants in the economy, as participants in the financial sector, and and really as participants in communities. And, and I, I think that's exciting. The other thing that's interesting about digital currencies is this potential to really improve competition with the big banks and to look at that pool of profits that they make as an opportunity to disintermediate, to reduce the cost of transactions and of financial services. How big a pool of you know, super profits is there that could be competed away? Oh, look, I, I'm, I'm sure that research is out there. I haven't got it to hand. But um, it's also important to know that we're talking about CBDCs and cryptocurrency and all that. But the fintech, so financial technology that we've seen over the last decade or so has been extraordinary and is starting to chip away at some of those monopoly rents that many of the large financial sector has had. Um, the, the rise of neobanks, the rise of alternative banking systems, interactions with different parts of the financial sector. I think everywhere in the developed world where we're starting to see some pretty substantial disruption that, that, I think, is an overwhelming good thing. I think that um, disruption is about to be massively accelerated by blockchain and cryptocurrencies, but it's definitely already happening. Uh, it, it is worth exploring the opportunities that these new innovative technologies can have for you. For example, you know, if you're looking to refinance a mortgage or buy a new home or what have you, make sure that you're looking far outside the traditional couple of banks that your parents may have done. When, when they were last looking for a mortgage. I think we get the benefit of these technologies, we get the benefit of this competition when we genuinely explore the space of that competition. Now, just to bring it back home, what sort of real products could consumers in New Zealand and Australia actually see over the next five years or so that's come out of a cryptocurrency or a central bank digital currency that actually changes their daily lives? Yeah, look, so over the next five years or so, we're going to see a greater demand from consumers to allow their money to do more things for them. So they're going to ask their governments, they're going to ask their employers to provide them money in accounts that can easily be interacted with on the internet, that can be subject to analysis from AI agents so that they can plan their budgets better, that they can deposit funds that they have in their account into decentralized finance lending schemes. It's that integration that people are going to be asking for, that integration between their bank account and the massive innovation in consumer financial technology that we've seen grow over the last couple of years. 
So what could governments do to make sure that New Zealand and Australia, for example, actually have a chance to get in on this? We've already got the likes of Atlassian in Australia and Zero in New Zealand sort of in that area. But what should governments do to make sure that our companies could get in on this game? Yeah, look, so there's two answers to that. The first is um, get out of the way. The perhaps more sophisticated one is governments need to be much faster at adapting regulatory frameworks to the demands of new technology. And I don't mean that we need to be quickly regulating these new technologies, quite the opposite. What I do mean, though, is that they need to be much quicker at figuring out when regulatory frameworks just don't make any sense for new technologies and to be able to introduce new frameworks when they're needed and quite quickly. The killer problem from a regulatory perspective in the blockchain economy right now is not that the regulation is too much or too little. The problem is that it's very unclear what the regulation is. So you end up with businesses operating in enormous regulatory uncertainty, which makes them hard to interact with traditional financial institutions or other regulators. It just makes it all a lot harder. Um, And so the best thing that that countries like Australia and New Zealand, who have relatively responsive political systems, relatively high quality regulators, the best thing that we could do is just keep up. And if we can keep up, we can attract employment, we can attract new companies and ultimately, you know, keep punching above our weight in some of these in these critical markets. Well, thank you very much. Chris Berg there, an Associate Professor at the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Lab. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a fascinating romp around the world of digital currencies, central bank digital currencies, blockchain. I hope that's given you an idea of the issues at play, how important it could be, uh, how quickly things are changing, and how much of an opportunity there is for New Zealand to use its reputation and its trust and its relatively simple secure systems to offer a different opportunity in a world where people are losing trust in some of the biggest players. Thanks to Chris Berg from RMIT and Dave Corbett from Power Finance. And also, remember, you've got to subscribe to make sure you get When the Facts Change, our weekly podcast from the spinoff brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank. I'm Bernard Hickey. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with Kiwi Bank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how Kiwi Bank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.